Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the invitation that we get from Jesus to come to you if we're hurt, if we're lonely, if we're struggling, if there's difficult situations in our lives, even if we're joyful and things are going well, Lord, you tell us to come, even to come boldly. And I love, Lord, how that song puts it, because there are times when we're lost. There's times when we're confused. There's times when we simply lack the strength or the will to come to you. And so you come and get us. And what a glorious and wonderful gift that is. I thank you for Jesus, our Savior. I thank you for your great love and grace. I thank you for how much you love us. May you be glorified in this time. May we have, Lord, ears to hear what you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were instructed to intentionally move forward in our spiritual growth. This week, we're going to continue to look at exhortations regarding our faith, specifically how we are coming to God's heavenly realm, and therefore, we need to listen to him and live Accordingly, There are some really sweet things in this passage that I am very excited to share and to talk about. But before we do, we need to read the word. So Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may, no, sorry, that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What a, oh, what an amazing six verses. Right here we see two mountains contrasted as two ways to approach God, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. The difference here is coming to God by the law, which is Mount Sinai, or coming to God by grace, which is Zion. The difference is coming to God by our own effort or coming to him based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So this is what we're going to begin exploring. Mount Sinai. This was a mountain out in the desert that we see on multiple occasions in the Old Testament. This scene presented to us here where there's the sound of a trumpet and voice of words and darkness and blackness and the mountains on fire. And if a beast so much as touches it, you were to stone it or shoot it with an arrow. That is presented to us in Exodus chapter 19. Highly recommend you go back and have a read at that. We're just not going to do it for time's sake right now. And we are clearly told 
This is not the way we come to God. We don't come to a mountain burning with fire. We don't come to a mountain that we cannot touch. We don't come to a mountain that terrified the people and terrified Moses. That's not how we come. That's the law. And you know what? The law should be terrifying. You go back and spend some time studying Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's some stuff in there that's it's hard. And the idea that you would have to keep it perfectly, or when you fail to keep it perfectly, you have to repeatedly make sacrifices in order to be right before God would be a very fearful thing. You've got to think about what that would look like. It's a lot like those who uh, subscribe to the Arminian way of thinking. Uh, if you remember, Joseph Arminius' idea was that if you make a mistake, you lose your salvation. And if you do not get saved again quickly and you die between the time you make a mistake and the time you get saved again, well, then you'll go straight to hell. That was Joseph Arminius' way of thinking, which is wrong. That's not what the Bible says. And I'm very grateful for it. Anybody here make a mistake yet today? I've made one or two, maybe more, right? And if I haven't made at least one or two, I'll probably make six or eight before the day's over. That's just how it goes. Well, according to that line of thinking, every time you make a mistake, you've got to get saved again. Your salvation is fled out the window, and, and you're, you're in danger. That's not grace. That, that's man-made works. That's the law, right? So you go make your sacrifice at the temple or the tabernacle before the temple was up. And on your way back, you, 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 you know, they all wore sandals. We've discussed what happens when your pinky toe finds something that's hard, right? So they're walking home, they whack it, and they cuss out the guy whose cart they just kicked. Well, then they got to grab themselves another goat or whatever it is and go back to the tabernacle over and over and over again. And the idea there is until you bring that sacrifice back, you're lost. That's the mountain. That's what's terrifying. Not to mention that when God descended on the mountain and there was fire and there was lightning and he spoke and the ground shook, that probably freaked people out too. But in that process, you were never sure of anything. That's the law. And we don't come that way any longer. Galatians 2.16, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, we don't use that as an excuse to sin. We don't use that to mean that we can just live however we want because we're covered by grace. God is not dumb and the Bible teaches us otherwise. But what it means is I don't do any of this so that I can be right before God. We don't come that way anymore. How do we come? Well, now we come to God by Mount Zion. This description, uh, Mount Zion is also another phrase for the city of Jerusalem, and this description is how we come to God now and the company who we will meet there. This is so, so beautiful. So first, we come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Right? This is described to us in Revelation 21. He's not talking about us making a pilgrimage to the physical Jerusalem now. He's talking about when he creates a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem in which righteousness dwells, this massive city that would take up roughly two-thirds of the United States when you measure it out. 
with, you know, the big pearly gates and the streets of gold and all that good stuff. That's where we come. Right? Not to the mountain burning with fire. Not to the place of punishment. But to the place of redemption and salvation. We come to an innumerable company of angels. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. How beautiful is that? Every time we see a heavenly scene, we see angels surrounding the throne of God, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. As you get into the book of Revelation, you see seas of people in the presence of God, clothed in white robes, casting down their crowns before his throne. That's where we're going. The company, the assembly of the firstborn, the firstborn speaks of Jesus. It does not speak of his physical birth. It is a reference to his resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead. And the purpose of him being the firstborn from the dead is so that we could follow after. And we could have the resurrection of the dead in him. But that's where we're coming. Again, a lot of this described in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, two of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's where we're going. When we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, when we trust in his death and resurrection and know that it is sufficient to save us from all our sins, that's our destination. How cool is that? We come to the judge of all, this passage says. We know God is the only righteous judge, and his judgment of those who have rejected Jesus is seen in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Not pretty. We read about Jesus' judgment of the saints for reward in 2 Corinthians 5. That's a whole other study. But we will come to the judge of all because there's only one. It's not me. It's not you. It's, it's not anybody else you might meet. Right? There's only one. Now, we can look at a person's life. We can examine the fruit in their lives and be wise and discerning. But ultimate judgment's not up to us. Only God can do that. We come to the spirits of just men made perfect. Who is this? These are those who were saved on earth and sanctified and justified by God. But then when they died, they went home. They became perfect. I love that. You and I, we're here on earth. If you know Christ as Savior, you're saved. You're sanctified. You're justified before God. By the guidance of his word and the power of his spirit, we're all moving forward in our faith, as we talked about last week, being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. However, we will never be perfect here. Something we should accept. I remember years ago, I was pastoring a church, and this person had started a uh, heretical Bible study in the area. Very heretical. Um, this person was trying to lead other people to hell, and I found out several members of the church that I was pastoring went to that Bible study, and I confronted them, and I confronted the person. Um, it was not pleasant. But anyways, one of the things that they were teaching 
was that you could become perfected by keeping the law. So uh, after I confronted them and confronted uh, the folks in my church who were part of this, I'm like, you got to show me a place in the Bible that says that. Well, um, um, and I said, I can show you places in the Bible that says the exact opposite. When does perfection take place according to this passage? When we get there. As long as we're here, as long as we're in this body, as long as we live in a fallen world, we're not going to be perfect. Give yourself a break. We should strive for excellence. I believe that fully. We should be doing by the power of God's spirit and the guidance of his word. As I say so often, we should be doing our best to move forward, to live lives that are righteous and holy, to live lives that honor God. But we're never going to do it perfectly, ever. We should strive for excellence, but not perfection. However, one day we will go home. One day this corrupted body will put on incorruption. One day this sanctified soul will be perfected. This justified soul will be made without spot and blemish. Oh, it's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day. Right? We're going to get to heaven. And not only is that what God is going to do for us, but it's not something we accomplish. It's been accomplished for us and then is given to us as a gift. But then we're going to be with all the others whose faith in Jesus allowed them to go to the same place. That's going to be a good day. You know how many people have been saved and died over the last few thousand years? Billions. That's going to be a big choir. And we're going to be right there. It's going to be an awesome day. And when we come to that place, the final phrase in this passage is to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We have spoken at length throughout the book of Hebrews how Jesus is our mediator, how he is the one who established and keeps the new covenant of grace by his blood, and how we are cleansed by his blood. So we're not going to dive into that here too deeply. If you really want to listen to it again, go back and listen to all the studies from Hebrews. We hit it over and over and over again. However, what does it mean that Jesus has done um, through his death and resurrection, the sprinkling of the blood, that this speaks better things than that of Abel? Well, this was actually talked about back in chapter 11. In, in Hebrews 11.4 it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. You see, Abel's faith and righteousness still speaks to us today because we have the word of God. However, Jesus speaks to us much greater things than Abel. Right? We can look back at the history of the world, at the history of our faith, whether it's the history contained for us in Scripture or the, the, the history we read in extra-biblical sources, and we can look at the faith of those who come before us and that can speak to us. It should speak to us. It should encourage us. It should inspire us. But it's never going to come close to what Jesus has told us. 
It's never going to come close to what Jesus has revealed to us, what he shares with us, what his spirit illuminates to us. And that is where we really pick up in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more, and I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. We are exhorted here to not refuse him who speaks. We should not refuse to listen to the voice of God that speaks to us. Those who refuse to hear when they heard the voice spoken to them on earth, um, examples, Israel at Mount Sinai, or those who heard Jesus in person and refused to listen, they did not escape judgment. How much worse will it be if we refuse to listen to the voice that speaks from heaven? This, of course, is a rhetorical question. It'll be worse. So we were blessed, as many of you know, on Friday night to see the opening two episodes of season three of The Chosen. Um, and you should know that because you're the ones who sent us to see it. And I'm very, very grateful. It was, it was a fantastic couple of episodes. So they, I, you gotta love the movie theater. This is so totally off topic. Right, you go in there and you can pay six bucks for a Slurpee that's, you know, this size. Then you can pay seven bucks for a Slurpee that's this size. But for 50 cents more, they'll give you a Slurpee this size. All right, that might be a little tall. And you know, my vast economic knowledge is like, well, it just makes sense to get the big one. But then they, they really get you in, right? Well, if you get the real big one, you can get a refill. So my wife and I shared this Slurpee with the refill. We drank somewhere around 3,000 ounces of sugar um, along with, you know, you can get the bag of popcorn that's this big for five bucks or the bag of popcorn that's this big for $5.25. Um, right, it's not quite like that. And, and so I ate vast amounts of popcorn and we came out and the inside of our mouths were bright red with the joy that is Slurpee. It's the only time I get a Slurpee is at the movies, but it's worth it every time. But we were there and we got to watch this and we got to watch it with other believers. It was awesome, so thank you. But one of the things that intrigues me about The Chosen, right, and, and we, we've talked about this, not everything in The Chosen is accurate according to your Bible. They do take some creative license. Sometimes that creative license is really good. Sometimes it's a little iffy. Um, but typically, I think they're giving a fairly accurate representation. But one of the things that I've always loved is when we read scripture, right, we read through the gospels, we're hearing the words of Christ. But something that very rarely pops into my head is that there were people who didn't read them. They actually heard them. They were actually there. And there's a comment, because the end of season two lets off at, uh, right as Jesus is about to deliver the Sermon on the Mount, and the first episode of season three, spoiler alert, is uh, Jonathan Rumi, who, who brilliantly portrays Jesus in this series, um, giving portions of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you remember the uh, uh, season two, I have a point. 
I promise this is going somewhere. If you remember season two, um, Matthew was writing down portions of the sermon. Matthew, of course, brilliantly portrayed by Paris Patel. Um, that's, that's, again, not an issue. Um, but he's writing it down. And then at the end of the sermon, there's a scene. You get to see it when it comes out. We've already seen it. Page one. But you get to see this scene where Matthew is standing there dumbfounded, holding all of his notes from the Sermon on the Mount. And, and one of the other disciples, I don't remember which one it was, came up. Was it, oh, was it Mary? Oh, sorry. It wasn't, well, she was a disciple. He, she wasn't an apostle, but she was still a disciple. Um, she comes over to Matthew and just sees him standing there. And, and I, I certainly, I'm not an actor, uh, but he's standing there holding the notes and he's like this. Just this look of, of, of like awe, I guess is the best word to put it, on his face. And Mary goes, what is it? And he goes, I wrote it all down. And, and he basically said everything that I wrote down. He goes, but it's different. And she goes, because he said it. Now, that scene was very cool to me, and it, it, it speaks to this right now. And I didn't know it. The sermon was done before we went to Grand Junction. Because there were people who actually got to hear his voice. One day we will, too. But we are given the word. We are given the word of God. And we are given the Holy Spirit. And there's several ways we can look at this idea of the voice that speaks from heaven, right? One, we know from John 16, 13 that the Holy Spirit is sent to reveal truth to us. Two, we have the word of God, which is literally breathed out by God according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Then we have, this is really what I would lean with, is you took, took those two things, I think it's a combination of both. God has given us his Holy Spirit. He has given us his word revealed from heaven. And as he's given this to us, we can hear his voice. One of the things that always boggles my mind is when someone says, oh, I just wish God would speak to me. And I ask them, when was the last time you opened your Bible? Well, you don't understand. I understand why you can't hear God's voice. Ultimately, it's because we're not listening. Here is where we listen. Another way that this could show up, which I think is important for us to think on, is God's providence at work in our world today. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork day unto day utters speech, Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now I remember when we first moved to Gunnison, um, I was quite in awe of this place. And I, I typically am on a, on a somewhat regular basis, but not as much, which is kind of unfortunate, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. The other night, I took my dogs out, uh, which I don't always do at night. Usually, I make the kids do that. That's why I had kids. Um, 
well, that and dishes, and uh, <laughs> and and to you know love and, and cherish and all that stuff. But you know, dishes, of course, it's great. We love you. Um, but I took the dogs out. I, I think Hannah was asleep on the couch, and Lydia was at work, and Leah was asleep on the couch with one of the cats on her lap. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll do it. Um, and and I went outside, and the dogs were you know being dogs, and I looked up. You know how clear and beautiful our sky is here all the time. And I looked up at all the stars, and the heavens declared the glory of God. Every now and then, like tomorrow morning at men's breakfast, I'll be up early enough to actually see the sun coming up. The sky, or the firmament, shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. And there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Paul picked up on this in Romans chapter 1, where he tells us that creation is witness to God so that no one has an excuse, right? Maybe not everybody has the theological knowledge that we gain from studying the word of God in depth, but there's not a single person on earth who can't look up at the sky and go, that couldn't have been an accident. There's not a single person who can hold a newborn baby and say, oh, look at this, billions of years of evolution at work. That's not how it works. We just can't. We just can't. But then the question comes, are we listening? This quote, this, the, the idea of being shaken here that shows up in verse uh, 26 and 27, right? Yeah, I shake not yet once more, and I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now, this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And I love this. It's a quote from Haggai 2.6. It speaks of judgment and a removal of those things that are made, so that what cannot be shaken, which is those of us saved by Jesus Christ, may remain. Again, this is going to refer to the new heavens and the new earth in Jerusalem, which we talked about above, which are created after God's final judgment. But I want to look at this promise in its entirety from the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Uh, if you haven't read through the minor prophets recently, it's always a great idea. It, we, we tend to dismiss them. Oh, I want to read the book of Isaiah or, oh, let's go read Daniel. Who's Haggai? Go check out who Haggai is. He's worth reading. This is that quote in context from Haggai chapter 2. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire." Of nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. That whole picture, the latter temple that he's speaking of, is him, his presence in the new Jerusalem. That's 
where we will go to find ultimate peace. That's where all of the nations will come to the desire of all nations, which is Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful prophetic passage about the future kingdom that we're already a part of. Isn't that cool? Am I the only one? I'm hearing a few, a few, uh, come on, people, this is cool. I don't need an amen. I just need you to know how cool this is, that the Bible tells us this. So cool, I spilled coffee on my hand. But why? Why does that need to be shaken? So that it can be gotten rid of, so that what cannot be shaken will remain. And what cannot be shaken? Well, those of us whose lives are built on the rock. Back to Matthew chapter 7. Right? You build your house on the sand. The rains fall. The floods come. And your house goes right out into the ocean in little bitty pieces. Because you didn't found it on anything. But those who hear my words and do them, Jesus said, can found their house on a rock. And the rains will still come. The floods will still rise and beat against that house, but it will not be moved. Why? Because I built a good house? No. But because my house is on an immovable foundation. The foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to go backwards just a little bit. I should have put this in different order in my notes, but it's too late. Listen. The whole point of this passage is that we listen. We hear his words and we do them. Matthew chapter 11, verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is one of the 56 times this phrase or one like it appears in the Bible. What does it mean? Right? We, most of us have ears. Even if you had something happen and you don't have an ear, most of us still have the ability to hear, right? Unless you're Helen Keller, and even then, right? No excuses. She couldn't hear or see. She could still read and write and communicate. It's not necessarily about the physical hearing. Having ears to hear means you're listening. It means you want to hear what God wants to say to you. It means you want what he wants for you. So if you have those kind of ears, listen. Listen. Don't refuse. This word for refuse, paraiteomahi. Say that three times fast. And it means to deprecate, decline, shun, avoid, to make excuses, to refuse or reject. We're not to refuse. When that means then, we should not avoid listening to God. When do we avoid listening to God? Typically when we've done something that we don't want to hear him tell us about. I don't want to talk to God. I don't want to hear what he has to say because I blew it and he's going to tell me I was wrong. When do we decline listening to the word of God? You ever done that? You know what? I see this going on in your life really feel like God wants to work in this area of your life and you're like man he ain't got nothing to say to me 
Shut up. I don't want to hear it. I've said that to people, by the way. Nobody here. I love you all. And I take everything you say with great value. Actually, I'm really blessed. You guys very rarely criticize me. Pick it up. No, I'm joking. I, I don't need more criticism. Um, well, I'm just saying you very rarely criticize me. But there's been many times where someone's come up to me and said something, and immediately my pride wakes up. My, my, oh, how dare you? How dare you talk to How dare you? Right? And then later on, God was like, you should have listened. But, no, just, you should have listened. I've had to go back and apologize to people for that. It's not fun. What about making excuses when it comes to me? That's my favorite. I bring it up a lot. How many of us make excuses for the amount of time we spend in the Word? Anybody? I do it. You know, and, and I've said this before, I, I get to cheat a little bit. I literally get paid to spend time in the Bible. Um, thank you. And it's awesome, and I love it. And, it, and But I do have to make the distinction between studying for a sermon and just listening to God. Because those can be two very different things for me. And if I don't make that distinction, if I make the excuse, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to skip my, my devotion time this morning because I'm going to be working on my sermon this afternoon anyway. You want to really know what happens? Working on my sermon that afternoon goes very poorly. Because I skip the time that I should just be spending with God. And people make excuses. I'm busy. So am I. Well, you don't understand how hard it is. Yes, I do. Well, you don't get that, that I've, I've got this going on and that going on and, and I don't get enough sleep and then I get it all. I get it all. I've made the same excuses. And you know what they say about excuses, right? Excuses are like armpits. Everybody's got two and they stink. That's why Jesus told us to hear his words and to do them so we can build our house on an unmovable foundation. Now we get to verse 21. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. I love this verse so much that somewhere around 15 years ago, I had it tattooed on my arm. That's, that's the Greek that's on the inside of my left arm. Fear God and have grace. Phobos, theos, echo, charis. That's what that means. And it comes from this verse. Um, so this he says, therefore, as a result of the truth we have studied, not just in the last couple of verses, but in the book of Hebrews and the Bible as a whole, this is what we should be doing. Verse 29 then really leads us into verse or chapter 13 um, where we'll get a series of closing instructions as I mentioned at the beginning. So first, because of everything that's come before it, we need to know we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Because the kingdom of God is immovable. Why? Because it's finished, or it's founded, sorry, on the finished work of Jesus on the cross as revealed to us 
in the word. Back in Matthew 16, verses 15 through 18, Jesus asked the, his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, this prophet or, or, or Isaiah or, or Elijah, or, right? They give, they give several excuses. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter looks at him and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now a lot of people go, oh, see, Peter is the rock on which the church is built. The Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, is sold on the idea that Peter is the rock on which the church is built. He's not. What's the rock on which the church is built? Peter's declaration. That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, you say, well, how do you know that? Because I have a Greek dictionary. The word Peter, right? And I say to you that you are Peter. It's a piece of a rock. It's a pebble. Imagine somebody at a quarry who's chiseling a piece of rock out. Well, what's going to be at their feet? Shavings, dust, little bitty pieces of that rock that they chiseled while they're trying to get the big block out. That's Peter. That's the kind of rock that's referred to. But on this rock, which is a massive rock, right? I will build my church. So when we look into the Greek, and the way that that's actually arranged, the rock on which the church is built is Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is what we build our lives on, what the church is built on. So then he goes on, with that being known, that's the foundation which cannot be moved, uh, there's a really cool illustration of that in the book of Daniel. Jesus being the rock that topples all other nations that stand against him. Very, very cool. Um, that's another study. But because of that, because that's our foundation, let us have grace by which we may serve God. We need God's grace to serve and worship him. It's that simple. Without his grace, we can do nothing. That's why Jesus told us, in John 15, 5, that apart from him, we can do nothing. That's why we are reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that God's grace is sufficient to provide us his strength in our weakness. If you're anything like me, you have a desire to serve God in that. Well, you can't do that without grace. You just can't. It's like wanting your car to go when there's no gas in it. You're not going anywhere. Unless you have a Tesla, and then you can't go unless you have electricity, which is made by natural gas. Yeah, you know, it's different, different, different. You, you figure that out on your own. But the point is, without the fuel, there is no go. Our fuel is the grace of God, distributed us by the power of his Holy Spirit. But we want to serve God, it says, acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The word for acceptably here is uh, <laughs> you say it. Something like that. And it means quite 
agreeably or to please well. How do we serve God in a way that pleases him well? Well, we serve him by his grace, letting his all-sufficient grace give us strength in our weakness. And as we do this, we do so with reverence and godly fear. And I, I love this word for reverence. The word for godly fear is, is what we think of when we think of fear. We should fear God, right? Not so much that we fear God's judgment. We've been delivered from that. We should fear the idea of ever being apart from him. We should fear him because he's perfect and holy and we don't want to dishonor his name, right? A healthy fear of God is good for us. Not because I think God's up there waiting to zap me the moment I make a mistake. I don't believe that for a moment. He's up there and his eyes are on me because he loves me and because he loves you. But a healthy fear of God is good for us. But it's this word reverence that I really like. Because it's to have an awe and a modesty toward God. That to me is such an interesting idea. We should stand in absolute awe of who he is. And because of that knowledge, we should be very modest or humble. Right? There's no pride before God. There just there shouldn't be. When I, I look to him and I think about who he is, all he has done, what do I have to be proud of? Right? Do I, am I proud because I saved myself? No, he saved me. Am I proud of the way I, I have gifts to use for his kingdom? No, because he gave them to me. Should I be proud of the holy life I've created for myself? No. Because he's the one who does that work in me. I got nothing to be proud of. If I'm going to boast in anything, I want to be like Paul. I want to boast in him. I want to boast in what he has done. Reverence and godly fear. And then he says this last phrase, for our God is a consuming fire. And I love that. It harkens back to him, hearken. We don't use that word enough. It harkens back to the mountain that was burned with fire. It harkens back, I'm going to see how many times I can use it now. Remember when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, right? And, and the water and the, the altar and the sacrifice, and God sucked all of it up in the fire. Remember the, the situation surrounding Samson's birth. Manoah brings this offering to the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus. And he, Jesus receives this offering, and then he goes up in the flame. And when he's done, there's nothing left. All-consuming fire. What it means is that there is nothing good that has not come from him. There is nothing that he doesn't see. There is nothing that he doesn't know. There is nothing in all creation that he does not uphold or have control over. With the exception of our free will. And that's by choice. He could choose to violate our free will. He doesn't. And I'm grateful for it. Okay, sometimes I'm grateful for that. Because sometimes I make really dumb choices. Uh, and I'm like, God, you should have stopped me. And boy, why? You wanted to do something stupid? I let you. Thanks. But he chooses not to violate our free will. And that's mind-boggling to us because he could. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He could stop us at any moment from doing anything. But he doesn't. 
That's a whole other issue to think about. I've said that several times today. But in the end, he is everything. All-consuming fire, he is everything. As we close, I think if we boil this down to one thought, I was doing that, right? We talked about so much today. Sitting in my office, I'm like, how would I put this into one sentence if I had to? This is what I came up with. We approach God through Jesus Christ so we can serve him, worship him, and live for him because of everything he has done for us and because he is everything to us. That's what I came up with. Now, does that encompass everything? No, the scripture is way too rich to boil it down to a sentence. But I was trying to wrap my mind around it. And how, how do I take this home? How do you take this home? We approach God through Jesus Christ so we can serve him, worship him, and live for him because of everything he has done for us and because he is everything to us. And when we consider all that's coming, this new heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem, and all God has for us, much greater, how much greater and more passionate should our relationship with God be? Mm, that one's supposed to make you feel guilty. A little bit. Right? I'm not here to put you on a guilt trip. I want you to think. Second, or 1 Corinthians 2.9 says that I is not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And I was thinking about this verse. I knew this sermon was coming up. I, I knew, and while Leah and I were away this weekend, I was thinking about how easy it is to become distracted by the things that just don't matter. It's so easy, isn't it? Right? And, and I'm not trying to trivialize anything going on in your life because there are things going on in all of our lives that do matter. They matter to God. But think about the things we get passionate about. Uh, we were out to breakfast yesterday and the NFL Network had the game on, uh, it was uh, Titans and, and, and uh, the Cheeseheads. Um, Packers, couldn't think of the Cheeseheads. Um, right? And as is typical, right, it's a little chilly in Wisconsin this time of year. Right? Dudes out there. Shorts, nothing else. Face painted, right? The hair on their body literally freezing off because of how cold it is. Screaming with a big cheese thing on their head and a big can of beer in one hand. Ah, you know, for the, for the Green Bay Packers. Packers lost. All that passion did absolutely nothing. Now let's assume the Packers won. Let's assume they go all the way. They won the Super Bowl. And they're out there half naked in the, in the freezing cold, covered with snow, screaming for their football team. Now whatever you think about it, that's dope. And for what? Because they're hoping their team wins a trophy that they'll never get to touch. Because they're hoping that their team will win a championship that they will be then allowed to spend money on to buy the t-shirt or the hat or whatever. 
because their team will get bonuses, some of them in the millions of dollars that they'll never see, and actually the cost of their tickets and the purchase of all the paraphernalia is how they can afford to give them the bonuses to begin with. It means nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now I say that, I'm passionate about at least one sport. But the point is, it means nothing. But look at how distracted they are. Because where are they when they're dressed like that? What day is it? What are they skipping? That means the Green Bay Packers, or whatever team, it's not just Green Bay, other teams do it too, have become their God. And what are they going to get in return from their God? Absolutely nothing. So start thinking about what you get. Right? I'm trying to help all of us, myself included, have a bit of a perspective shift this morning. Think about what we get. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Think about what we get. We, God's going to create heaven and earth anew for us. He's going to create a city paved with gold for us. He's going to bring us into his very presence where there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering. All the trauma of our past erased. All of our sin gotten rid of. All of the hurt, corruption, and horrible garbage we've experienced on this planet, gone. That's going to be a good day. With that being our destination, that being where our journey is leading, how should we approach this I'm going to dare say a little differently than most of us do. Myself included. Right? Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I worry about a bill I have to pay. Not that I shouldn't be responsible and pay my bills, but in light of eternity, what is that? Maybe somebody said something to me that hurt my feelings. And that doesn't necessarily insignificant or wrong, but in the light of eternity, should I hold on to that bitterness and anger? and refuse to forgive. Or maybe there's something in my life that's holding me back. We've talked about this over the last couple weeks, but it's holding me back from moving forward in what God has for me. In light of where I'm going, boy, I want to move forward because I want to get there. And it's all because of what he said. But I think when we have that perspective shift, the way we approach the world around us is going to be a little different. And it should be. So, I always have to annoy you with a couple questions. The first one, for anybody who might be listening here or online, are you part of the kingdom that cannot be shaken? It's my favorite question. I was privileged this week to um, talk to a young man who changed addresses. It was awesome. He was in the kingdom of darkness. Now he's in the kingdom of light. 
right? And I just give all the God the glory. I was at lunch. I was driving back to the church here. I was crying in the car. It was pretty sad, you know, but it was just because I was so overjoyed. Because it wasn't me. I got to watch God save me. And that's just so cool. Right? But if there's anybody who doesn't have that, if you're online, leave us a message, send us an email. I don't care how you do it. Get in touch. We'll, we would love to help you with that. But if you don't know, if you're not in that new kingdom, well, it's time. Over the last week, now I'm hearkening back, right? They're hearkening. I'm going to put it on my office door. Let's hearken. Um, hearkening back to last week, I, made, I asked a question last week, um, and I'm asking you now, what has God led you to do to be more intentional in your spiritual health? Are you doing it? Investing in our relationship with him adds to us being unshakable in Christ. Because the more we know him, the more we trust him. Finally, are we listening to God and acting on what he says so that we can have grace and serve him acceptably with reverence and godly fear? Because I'm going to tell you something. I'm not, a, I'm not a prophet in that general sense of predicting your future, but I can guarantee God has something for you. I know that. I can guarantee there's something that God wants you to be doing. Now, maybe you're already doing it. Praise God. That's awesome. Maybe you're not. That's not up to me. That's between you and him. And if you are doing it, then seek him on how he wants you to continue to move forward with it. And if you're not, well, figure out what it is and start. Because, guys, that's how we're going to change the city. Not us but by God working through us and what he's called each of us to do. The thought that I had, and I'm going to end with this, I promise, because I've already gone longer than I should have. But the thought that I'm going to end with is this. As I drove back, you know, we, we all have great desire as a church to see revival in our city, to see an awakening in our valley, to see people coming to know Christ. And, you know, I, I would love nothing, I would nothing more than to uh, you know, Roy and I have talked a little about this, to have some event where hundreds of people come out and they all get saved and then they all start coming to church or a church, not even necessarily ours, and how cool that would be. Because it would be, wouldn't it? And now this isn't a lack of faith. This is a reality check. Because this is what I think is really going to happen. We're going to take this city back from the devil one soul at a time. Until... They're all his. And as much as I love you, and as much as I love being here on Sunday morning, that's not going to take place in this building. It's going to take place out there. And that is what we are called to. I'm giving you a bit of a glimpse of the sermon I'm going to preach on January 1st. So there's your, there's your preview. Until then, let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for the call and gifting you've put on our lives. I thank you for the love and grace that you've shown each and every one of us. I pray, Father, as we move into this week, that you would just bless us as we celebrate you, as we celebrate all that you've done in our lives, all that you're giving us, 
I pray that you would bless us, Father, as we seek you, as we seek to grow in our faith, as we seek to follow your call on our lives. Lord, I love you. I know you love me. I love this church. I know you love this church. And I'm grateful that we love each other. In all things, Lord, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.